0: Most couple of things are relationships. It's all about relationships and teams and leadership teams and team building and team following. So uh, the tools of narrative medicine uh, are one the vehicle for getting at some of these issues. team of people that deals with health. The person who removes your trash every day is a health provider not a health care provider. But if that's not removed, you know what happens. The people who keep the sewers running, the people who responded to a sand and pumped the water out of those tunnels, they're all the people who deal with sewerage every day, let alone education, The whole education system, um, social services, etc. Those are all major contributors to the health of individuals and to the health of the population. And it's that difference between a focus on health and healthcare that's critical. So if we're to move forward and create a healthcare system that we deserve, by which I mean the public deserves, not we the providers, but the public, if we're to do that, we've got to have a very different focus and framework within which we work. And I think the key to focus in on health uh, is that it's all about teams, which are all about relationships. So I think in that sense, we have a relationship to narrative medicine. One other thing that, that I think, I would hope you would pick up on as I go through fairly quickly a number of slides here, is that we need to create in the healthcare education system now for our trainees across all professions a psychologically safe environment mm-hmm. in which they can interact appropriately, in which they can speak their minds without fear of retribution or embarrassment. And so, you, you folks know this more than I do, but I think that's an important connection between what I'm trying to do and many like me Uh, What we're trying to do uh, is, in a sense, create an environment in which reflection flourishes, Mm -hmm. because without reflection, there's no use for So our learning environments now are broken. Mm -hmm. They're all embedded in largely dysfunctional healthcare systems. And I say that not just Mm paragently, in any way, there are many good things that Healthcare systems are brought us so in the technology medicine, but it hasn't provided the kind of small room where people can sit and feel safe to discuss things that are important about patients or about populations or about the communities that the patients come from. So that's the connection. Having said that, that's the bottom line. I really don't have to say anything else. Unless we do that, unless we marry a modern learning environment with an evolving and improving healthcare system so we have good practice environments to train our students in. and for our students by the way, I was reminded they, they help train yes. us yes. it's a bi-directional thing there's no interaction with a student I've ever had that hasn't been bi-directional I've learned some maybe sometimes more than I gave, other times perhaps less but it's a bi-directional so, that's the, the connection. So, in thinking about what a, a, a neophyte narrative medicine could do here, I thought I'd take one set of experiments from the largest integrated healthcare system in the country, which has many good and bad things about it. And I'm not gonna go through all of those. But one thing it does very, very well, almost in a despotic sense, as Rita and I were talking is its adjective can move. The Secretary for Veterans Affairs can say, on Monday, we're going to do X, and by Friday, he will get a full briefing on how to do X. Now, if you think the same thing in an academic medicine, the health (laughs) system, they get referred to committee. Well, that's death. You know, committee never decide anything. So, but what is the balance between freedom and chaos, right? On the one hand, just do all sorts of stuff because it seems like anything to do. And on the other hand, someone saying do this, it's great if it's a benevolent, yeah. benevolent desktop, but there are a whole lot of those and they tend not to recur in generations, right? And we start out that way, but their sons and daughters tend not to. So, I mean, it's a real issue. And I want you to think about the ability of the VA. Okay. If it can do anything, think of it as a large sandbox in which, with the right leadership, with the moment we have the right leadership, we don't always have the right leadership, but the moment we do, experimentation can occur. Not experimentation on veterans with symptom experimentation, but experimentation to improve care for the population and create the environment in which we can place trainees psychologically safe, where they can reflect and deal with things. So I'm going to skip through some of these slides, some of them I won't even pause on, because I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about, and so I'm I'm still not sure what I'm going to talk about, so I made the angry back for and forth, but, you know, I you walk out and walk, and I've I'm always many people, walk out of the walk, and the if you have better things to do, don't do it. Uh, So, uh, I mean, here's a manifesto, right? And I think most of us in this room, and most healthcare leaders to agree. I'm not going to read it. You can read it for yourself. Patient-centeredness, the fact that it won't happen unless we have these safe, effective clinical environments. I don't just mean patient-safe, but I mean psychologically safe for the workers, the staff and the students. Uh, And don't write the staff. Nothing ever useful came from writing this down, from writing this, but yeah. not from writing down anything from a slide. Rita has all the slides, you're welcome to. You know, public goods, since like I work for the VA. If they're worth anything, you, you can have them. Now, healthcare institutions won't be able to do things without the support of evidence-based and systems-based science. And of course, we have a value contract with patients and society, that's why I students go into the profession. So this is a sort of a manifesto that just states some of the obvious, I think. Now think how complex the system is. Think how complex the Affordable Care Act, which mm-hmm. is nothing more than a minor tool to reform the US healthcare system. Any of its provisions are by themselves insufficient and probable and certainly ineffective. It's a way of getting going. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's like an enzyme, right? Remember that about enzymes. So it catalyzes some reaction. That's the plan. But look how complex the system is. So we have our clinical learning environment, the point of care. This is a clinic where you're seeing the patient and the teams walking through. So you're delivering care. You have a system in which these many of these point of care or clinical microenvironments are embedded. The institution, Columbia University. Many people call this a mesosystem. This the microsystem, and all of these things are embedded, and there are many of them <coughs> in the overall U.S. healthcare system. Or if you're talking just about the VA healthcare system, or not, okay? so, and the the complexity is <coughs> is only simplified by this one point that the patient has to sit at the center. Now you could argue too that communities and populations need to sit at the center, but then the slide it's too complicated, and I would agree with that. I mean, it's the yin and yang of the whole story, right? Pa- individual patients and populations or communities. But if you have a system in which the patient isn't in everything uh, that you do within these complex systems, the center of activities. But what do I mean by that, simple. What do they want? And are you meeting their needs? What are their expectations? Are you meeting their needs? Be they a patient, be they a family, be they the community, be they the population in the United States, right? I mean, that's a very simplistic approach to things, but you have to be simplistic to, to simplify the complexity of all this. Unless you have a vision that framework you can't get anywhere now. So the central element then about the patient is caring. Now notice I say care, not to care for, not to deliver care to, but care. So caring includes all the technological and clinical skill sets that we learn to deliver the patient's population. but it also includes the very important piece of caring about, not providing.
1: The better the caring,
0: <coughs> this for some reason is not going forward. Oh, they look default. back, No previews. Uh-huh. But the better you care for and about the patient, the better is the learning environment. And the more learning that goes on, uh, obviously, the better the caring. So, there's an inseparable duality here, if you think about it, between the delivery of care or caring about and the educational learning systems that are put in place. They're just linked together. They're inseparable. And one of the big mistakes we've made over the years is talking about them separately. So, the education people will come in and say, I have this great idea, we're going to do this. Never talk to the health systems people around the practice. And the practice people, they have. advanced, enlightened individual who thinks about that as running, well, you know, a clinic or a hospital. So there's an inseparable duality there. Practice redesign affects caring, educational redesign affects learning, and that's all linked together in this way around the patient. The system works if you spin it around the patient. It doesn't work if you spin it around the needs of the physician, the specialty, the hospital, or anything else. It only works if that patient or population is there. And then, of course, the structure and financing of the whole health system I'm not going to talk about, but clearly that's important, because that influences everything that we do. So in thinking about system redesign goals, and I say system, that is practice and education. They need to be thought of as a duality. What are some of the key issues and you know these because you've all been patients. Well, maybe some of you are too young, okay. But the old folks who have been through the mill multiple times, like myself, understand that they could make a better list than I can any day of the week. There needs to be informed decision-making. That means that decisions need to be shared not just with the patient and the family, but with other members of the team. Yeah. Otherwise, there's this usual chaos in communication where the physician X doesn't know what physician Y did or nurse practitioner Q doesn't know what pharmacist E did, et cetera. So shared decision-making. And you can't have effective shared decision-making without sustained relationships. If you go in and you see a patient just for a workup coming in for a cardiac cath, maybe a little complicated so they admitted that, yes, I know most of them have done nurses. But let's pretend it was the organs that came in the hospital Medical student runs and does a workout. Well, that's great. He learns how to do workouts, or she learns how to do workouts. He may even sneak his way into the cat and learn about that fascinating device that you put in there. And the skills that are involved in the cardiology and basis cardiologist. That's all great. But what does he learn about the patient? Yeah. Popkus. <coughs> Nothing. Okay? Because he has no sustainable like, that doesn't know the patient before, doesn't know the patient after. Patient gets cats, it's fixed, goes home, Last on the student of the season. So that education interrupters kind of model can't support continued development of relationships. Right? It can't. And Rita can spend the rest of her life talking about narrative medicine as a tool to bring people together and be effective. But if it's not reinforced here in a clinic, it is, I hate to say, a great exercise, but in the long term Means. So it needs to be reinforced. So shared decisions and sustained relationships. Interprofessional team-based care. There's no one I know in the health policy realm who does not agree that the future is team-based care. OK? Now, you can argue about the composition of the teams, etc., etc., But most people would agree that they're not only team-based, but interprofessional team-based. What does that imply? Psychological safety? Yeah. You know, why is the nurse going to stand up and grab the surgeon's hand and say, You are cutting the wrong place, you're taking the wrong leg off, right. or you're giving the wrong medication, unless he or she, as a nurse, understands that she or he is not going to be subjected to retribution, mm-hmm. be it embarrassment or be it worse? Mm-hmm. Right? So, psychological safety. And this whole issue of leadership and fellowship, uh, when to lead, when to pull back and let someone else in the team lead based on the expertise needed at that moment to solve the problem de jour, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. That's a very complex thing. And if we don't bring the professions together early to socialize and learn together, why would you expect them to start out with anything but silos, suspicious of each other or embarrassed? Now, I know here in Columbia, in a lot of medical schools now, and uh, increasingly in nursing schools, people are beginning to get that's the right direction. So interprofessional team-based care is important. Mm -hmm. And continuous performance improvement. It's not good enough to say, you know, I know that I'm doing the right thing, so it needs to be evidence-based, but even that's not good enough you now have to improve your outcomes continuously. And everyone knows that. Toyota's has us that. Every corporation in the United States has been successful towards that and around the world, that you can't rely on static uh, performance. You need transparent, responsive, and reliable systems of care and sustainable value-based economic models. Now, that's a mouthful. We don't have it. That's where the ACA comes in. This is the beginning of thinking of having a sustainable structure in which performance improvement can continue. The VA, for example, has had for 20 years a really state-of-the-art electronic health record. Now, that's great. It can communicate much better. Uh, You can measure outcomes much better. You can then react to those outcomes and improve your practice or improve your education, so much better. but that alone is insufficient without all the other things that we see. So we need both technology, and we need an understanding. And we need massive reform of the current system. That's the last couple of points there, I'm not going to belabor, because if there's anyone in the room who thinks we have a great healthcare system, the number one in the world, come and talk to me afterwards, because it's my job to convince you that that kind of rhetoric just look at our mortality, child health statistics, our obesity and diabetes epidemic. This is a great number one nation, right, for health in the world. We're not, and I suspect you all not know that. Okay, so uh, what does this have to do with the VA? Let me get just to, a little bit into the background here. So the VA uh, has, over the years, done a number of major experiments. About two years ago, the primary care people got together and said, we need a much more patient-centered approach and we need a patient-centered medical home. And those are packed, patient-aligned care teams is the VA brand of the patient-centered medical home. But anyone needs a brand, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is our brand. We couldn't use PCMH. That's that's, that's. Okay. Um, so that's what we're gonna do. We're going to make our practice much more patient-centered. Now, this re- re- <clears throat> led to an opportunity for the educational uh, people uh, in my office to think, well, we have a statutory mission, and yes, the VA's education mission, 130,000 students every year, across 22 different health professions, is embedded in law. So no one can change that. And since the Congress can't change anything at the moment, it's like that way for a long time into the future. So we have this mission, and that means we can link education as in the previous diagram to the practice. Right? You can think about it, put it in the VA. And we have a, a, a legal mechanism for that. And so it gave us an opportunity to think, oh, OK, they're going to transform primary care practices. How can we work with them? How can they work with us to transform the own And the VA secretary is a despot. All Mm -hmm. secretaries are despots. It's not a a remark about this wonderful secretary we have at the moment. He is truly a wonderful man. But they're all despots. And despots have one advantage. They can do things Mm quickly. So he said, okay, you've sold me on this idea. This is what we need to do. Let's do it by next week. Well, they negotiated him down to next year. Mm But if you think about practice change, that's complicated enough. Think about educational change when you recognize that the VA students come from 5,000 other accredited programs across all the national The VA doesn't set the curriculum. Columbia sets its curriculum. The back of sets it. Bronx VA does the set your curriculum. And of course, the accredited So, how do we bring this whole thing together? So, this is just a little bit of VA background. I've said most of it. I'll just highlight a couple of things uh, 150 hospital outpatient clinics, 900 community based for about 1,000 sites of primary care, about 5 million primary care patients, each already assigned to a single primary care provider. That was a previous reform. And some 12 million encounters year. This is a big sandbox, right? And to expect this to happen in a year or two or three is unrealistic. <coughs> but the important thing is not to get there. The important thing is to stop. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a long time to get there, whatever there is, right? So this is a big system. Biggest in the country. Skip that because there were a variety in that. There were a variety of initiatives, sub initiatives that were put in place under this umbrella of transforming the corporations in the VA. One of them was around education. We were able to persuade the leadership that we needed some Morris and Mouse money. They put about a billion dollars into. set up so-called primary care centers of excellence Mm -hmm. at five sites. It was a competitive (coughs) grant application. And we did it at five sites with their affiliates. And there were some interesting uh, uh, requirements uh, for submitting those applications. But I want to pause here and just give you this quote. You can read it. And if you think about it, it's right. Because if we're really going to transform something, we need to start with the future, not with the past. The past is already history, and soon will be true, archival history. So we need to start with our pipeline that's going to produce the next generation. This is pretty wise sort of thinking, isn't it? For a He happens to be a physician. He also happens to be a cardiologist. So this is really odd thinking (laughs) for a cardiologist, Okay. But Bob Jesse, who's the principal deputy of the Secretary for Health, and his boss, the Under Secretary for Health, understand this and I meaning. So the importance of leadership in whatever you do is critical. The one thing young people make the mistake about is not that it's not their enthusiasm, it's not their commitment, it's not their brains. It's the fact that they think they can change the world. Yeah. and try, and I wish you well, but the complexities of a modern sort of society, in a democratic society like ours, it's just that you've got to find the hook, or hooks, co-optimation. And I think most of you who are activists or students will recognize the importance of that. So anyway, what were the goals? So the goals of these uh, five centers of excellence in primary care we to change learning and practice. Notice the two go together. Practice, learning, it's a link, it's a duality. To be veteran, caregiver, staff, family training, institutional health system expectations. Right? I mean, you could have written this yourself now, right? Maybe without me standing here at all. Change how VA and its academic partners engage to reinforce that relationship. Because we're dependent on the curriculum and the supply of trainees on the Columbia's, on the Mount Sinai, on the Boston Women's Hospital, etc. Right? I mean, they own the trainees. So this is a very difficult balancing act. We can't just change things at the VA without bringing the academic community with us. Why would they come with us? Because they know this has to happen. And for the most part, they don't have the training sites to do it. And hell, if the VA wants to try and use its resources let's go along. how bad can it be? Right. Right. So most of them are very interesting. It's resources, it's different training sites, it's opportunities. So it's not that hard to if you it, but you have to be cautious uh, in dealing with it because you don't want to imply ever that you've got a class A and class B system. No. Right. you're just trying to improve the system, it's not that their system is bad and ours is better. That way you'll never get in the way of negotiation. You've got to strong up on and, last, oh, and so this is, a, I think, an interesting slide. Well, it has anything to do with what i have saying, I don't know. But it's an interesting slide that you need to know about. It comes from chaos. And if you look at this kind of issue here, on this axis we're plotting professional agreement about outcomes. As we do an intervention, is there general agreement of what the outcome will be? Or is there not? Low to high, no numbers, obviously. And then the certainty about the outcomes. That's different than the professional agreement. Many times we're wrong. We may agree, but that's not the outcome. So if you plot those two on these sort of axes, you get a sort of three-part graph, and you've probably figured it out already. The first <coughs> is if you really know what's going to happen, there'll be pretty strong agreement about that, and you have the death but for the most part, we don't know, either on the practice side right? or the education side, what right, the right model is. If we did, I'd of and, and retire. We don't know. So we're not in that zone, although some people may think we are. At the other end, when you have no idea about professional agreement and what the outcomes are, you have true chaos. There's people just doing things to try and move forward mm-hmm. you know, in an altruistic way, something going to snap from that? Maybe, maybe not. So where do we work most of the time? There, right? Mm-hmm. We work somewhere between the two extremes, and so that's where we are at the moment. It's a zone of complexity, because we don't know what we're doing, whether it's running. We have hypotheses. We have wise people that are trying to you know, work with us, uh, etc. But we don't really know. No. So it's a complex zone to work in. So the curriculum design, if you think about curriculum design, this is the traditional model. I think this is probably the Columbia curriculum, but maybe it's transitioning somewhere. If you start with a curriculum, that is, it is. You have some objectives for that curriculum, obviously. Now, 20, 30 years ago, we never even had any objectives. We just knew what the curriculum should be. Right? But well, now we do have educational objectives and then and also a modern phenomenon. Hey, let's find out right. where any of those are being met. Let's have some metrics to assess them. These are all new developments. Mm-hmm. These don't go back further than 25 years, generation, by watch. But that's an old model. The system-based model starts with yeah. patient and population needs, right? So all my slides are repetitive. Notice I haven't said anything different for the past 20 minutes. So if you've got what I said at the beginning, you've got it, and you can go home Right? But if you start with health, patient with population needs, then it's very easy. When I have competencies, well yeah, that's a little different than yeah, objectives. It's a little mm-hmm. more advanced. It's another name for objectives. Entrustable professional activities is a new name for competencies. But they're all operationally different, but conceptually the same. But important nonetheless. That drives the curriculum and what you assess is the competencies Mm -hmm. or some derivative thereof. So these are new sort of uh, ways of thinking about it. So we thought a lot about this because educators worry about these things. But then we had to worry about so what are the learning modalities? Notice I don't say the teaching modalities, Mm -hmm. it's really about learning because it's bi directional, right? Well, there's two kinds of general learning modalities, and you know these. There's thinking your way into new acting. That's the academy. The academy doesn't do anything until it thinks a lot and refers it to the committee and gets a report. And right? I'm not being, not being a majority, I'm just being a little sharp around the edges of that. But that's thinking your way into new acting. That's a traditional way of how we've worked for the past century scientific revolution, all that good stuff which is critical to what we do, and not belittling.
1: But there's another way, a new way of
0: doing things. Acting your way and that is, if you know the Nike logo, just do it. Now don't do it foolishly, but get started and learn by what you do. And improve as you move forward. Now, do the experiment, recognize it but it may not be a very controlled experiment because of the nature, but it's a very different way of thinking. We need both. It's not. It's nothing is an either or. It's always an end. But there are two different ways of thinking. So workplace learning. Just think about how complicated yeah. workplace learning is. Right? Yeah. First of all, it's completely unscripted. Something happens and you have to react to it. You can't train for contrary for every eventuality, but you have to react. That's why the team is so important, with the hope that the complementary expertise of different people across the team will be able to be brought to bear on problem visual, which yes. may be a new problem. So it's unscripted. You can't learn. No classroom activity other than generic conceptual discussion, maybe in a narrative medicine course, but certainly some has to be collaborative. Yeah. In other words, this this business of bringing the parts of the team together like a jigsaw puzzle is absolutely critical. That's where the interprofessional team-based care. And this distributed yeah. issue that I've talked about before, leadership, followership, when to give up, when to take back, without disrupting the dynamics of the team. Very complicated. So these are some very complicated issues. So let me just finish up. In the last five minutes, well, just a snippet, because you're not that interested, I think, in the specifics of this experiment. But I think the conceptual approach that I'm trying to give you is the critical information. So we set up these uh, projects with our affiliates, and uh, the deployment was interesting. It was quick. It was done like a grant. We got 22, were invited finally, and we picked five. And it was all started very quickly to mm-hmm. look at this. We set up a coordinating center in January of last year. The five sites were activated three months later. And the students arrived three months after that. We're now in the second academic year. Now show me an academic health system that can work at that speed. So even on the very complex educational side of things, we have to move fast. Because the secretary has a limited attention span. He wants this to work. Not because he wants fame, but because he wants it to work for veterans, yeah. right? So what were the core requirements? We had to have both a medical school and a nursing school involved. Uh, we had physician and nurse practitioner attending co-directors of each of the programs, integrating new professional teams. And this was not trivial. This was 30% of time. Interesting why we picked 30% time. Why did we pick 30% time? Who, who is the, the students who are internal medicine residents and nurse practitioner mm-hmm. the students? Who's a GMA program director? It's the maximum amount of time without having a doing experience. Okay. 30% of each or 30% of the program. Am I right? Sometimes I'm wrong. I'm wrong. So, but it should have been more. When you think about it, but we couldn't. Resources, so we gave 1 million a year per center for five years, that's five million total. Additional funding for stipend and support and benefits um, and we have a national coordination evaluation So these are the sites, just so that you know. San Francisco, and yes, the VA hospital looks over the Golden Gate. This is the hospital, it's the Golden Gate. Puget Sound in Seattle up the turnpike a little bit, <coughs> West Haven, oh. Connecticut healthcare system. Notice that there's a school of medicine and nursing involved in each. Boise, our rural site, it's not that rural Boise, but it's certainly different from these other powerhouse academic sites. Their nursing school, for example, is, I don't know, 500 miles away, oh. and Cleveland. So those were the sites. And uh, I'm going to tell you about the implementation model and none of the outcomes because we don't have any yet. So we may be completely off base. But just quickly: collaboration across five sites with central coordination. Different locally developed training models. Very important. One size does not fit all. This is a huge, diverse country. We have to do things differently and modify the principles as we move along. Not the core. Demonstrating educational or clinical improvement is necessary but not sufficient. <coughs> this is an important step. It's the doing piece. Learning what works and when and how is as equally important as the educational and learning and clinical approach. Because what are we interested in? These are five sites. We're interested in producing up to 150 sites in VA, and heaven knows so how many sites are so we're not just doing this for the sake of the monks saving Western civilization by creating great books. No. Right? We're doing this for a real purpose, which is to improve yeah. natural care and health. And we need to move it up in the So these are incubators. That's all they are. Mm-hmm. Stolen entirely from the technology fund, because we need, you know, incubators to do these things. And, of course, patient care has to be as good. We hope better. And population health in the long run has to really be better. Um, <clears throat> some more points. Changes at the point of care alone will be insufficient. Right. Remember the three circles? Right. There's an ophthalmologist here. Some people call that the eye. The clinical microsystem is the PO, whatever that middle part of the eye is. And then there's the iris around that, the institutional mesosystem. And then the big Some people call it the I-Model. But clearly, there's so many interactions of great complexity between all components of this that you can't just sit down at Columbia and say, that's how we're going to do it. No. You've got to get your practice people. You've got to get your partners, right. You've got to get your community. And you've got to take into account the restraints come in the war in the campus. So these may be obvious things, but it's important, I think, to, to state uh, that follows directly, and that follows directly, too. So there are different ways of saying the same thing. We're interested in sustainment and generalizability, at least across the year. So I'm not going to go further at this point, because I think I've said enough, and it's late. And I'd like to leave all roll time. sense, not of really what this experiment is, but that this and you know, a whole series of other experiments, which I think might like as a must be of different ways of doing things throughout the human system, are underway. And if they're smart enough, will gather useful information from them or to inform reformation of education and practice. Uh, and that clearly, we need to work together between health systems and the education systems to make this work. If we, if we don't do that, I think we're going to end up with this misaligned sort of practice education system forever, which is going to do much. So thank you very much for very, very good. So this is a man with his sleeves rolled up. Uh, questions? It's your vision, it's many other people's vision. It's a patient-centered yeah. And somewhere along the road, American medical education, I can't speak for the other professions because that would be unfair. I don't know. But American medical education lost its way. And what some say it lost its soul. That's a more profound state. But it certainly lost its way. Around the issue of this not interlocking. That, that you so eloquently described. And, and we're trying to get it back. I mean, the world, many people, are now trying to get it back. And it's my hope that those who knew a system from before, where it could really work that way, although on a much smaller scale, and a much less complex will be around long enough to actually see this reformation. And help me to put any implications on your work. <laughs> Uh, but this is going to take time. Please, Chris. Uh, could you give an idea of uh, what part of the VA's uh, uh, workload is concerned with the psychiatric treatment of PTSD, and um, and what has been the impact of uh, of the uh, recent About diagnosis and also you know, developments in, in group therapy. Uh, uh, that seems to be a particularly active area of, uh, of politics. Uh, well, that's there, just a long list of, of important stuff in the question that right? you so raise. Just to try to be very really brief, because it's a, it's a whole union unto itself, that question, but mm-hmm. a very important one. So, a couple of points. VA the, the best in largely because it has interprofessional expertise brought to bear. it's put a lot of resources into it, and because it needs to do that, because it's under the microscope of Congress daily. certainly gets the attention of the nation. I prefer to Education together that they needed to expand the pipeline. Yeah. Right? Well, they never sustained anything. They hired all these people but with natural attrition, five, ten years from now, you'll be back. So they put, through my office, a bunch of money uh, into hiring new training across the same specialties that I mentioned psychiatry, psychology, social work, chapter. So, the first phase of that will kick in next July 1. Okay. That's a year after this was announced. Wow. Okay. And there will be 200 new positions, funded the VA. And those letters, I think, have gone out, go out and will go out within the next few days to places to apply. And it was a requirement, as is always the case. Application comes from the VA, signed off by the local VA leadership. I've also signed off by the program director or appropriate leadership at the FBA. So I think a turnaround like that, 1,600 new positions, 2,000 new trainee positions. So this is a five year thing, we're going a thousand out over five years. We hope that we can find that. So I think the coordination of education and practice You know, the horrors of what our returning veterans are returning. I'm not the right person to ask. I can tell you that there's a disproportionate load of resources, health resources in the VA, going to those returning veterans for obvious reasons political reasons. It's unlikely they're returning to us with physical and mental health problems that we need to deal with. Whatever the reasons. So there's a disproportionate quote unquote, but appropriate, I think, a bunch of our healthcare resources going into that. I'll tell you one of the most, if I may, because this is a great story. One of the most uh, uh, attaching stories I heard is, you know, every few months the leadership of the VHA, myself, meets with the veteran Service Organization. These are the folks who are lobbies, basically, the associations and veterans of different areas for law. And they do a great service because they're for the veteran, they keep us the honest, and we are not on the point. So they're actually very good people. And we were talking, about a long discussion, and one of the VSO leaders, uh, the president of one of their organizations, stood up and told a story which I'll summarize very briefly. I want say We were talking about distribution of resources. And he got up and said, Look, the VA has a lot of old people. The geriatric resources are, are here. Now we've got all these, you know, this need for mental health resources. And he said, I don't know what to do. And I don't know what to do because my father is a World War II oh. veteran and my son is a War veteran. Wow. And they both need it. So, how do you decide? How do you make the prioritization? How do you deal with the ethical dilemma? So, you try and do your best. And but the VA does provide resources. I don't know. Those oh, numbers are old enough. I just don't have Dr. Boyd. Thanks very much. It's very. We shape our personalities, Well, our personalities are shaped by. Uh, <coughs> our careers are often shaped by the groups that we belong to. Um, and we often aggregate in like versus like, as So, I mean, that general thing, I think probably you understand better than I, that's terribly important. But in addition to belonging, being able to share stories and experiences with people who understand them. Not necessarily us, but the people who are taking care of them. I mean, to survive in the military, you know, the Marines say can never leave someone behind. Well, that's at a certain that will mean something, but a deeper level means a lot more. And so it's important for those people to be able to talk to about the other similar things and, and people's similar experiences. I'm not a psychiatrist I'm not on anything. But, I mean, to me, that's a critical issue. I and mean, the vets talk about that. And to them, it's sort of like in my mind, the psychological safety issue. Yeah. You know, they can talk about what it means uh, when you're in Iraq and you're on patrol and everything's fine, but you never know when the next is going to explode. And you look up at all the houses this scene in the yeah, really. everyone's on the cell phone. Right. Well, just think what that means. So being able to share the horrors of that and the fears and the hopes while getting through that. So community is very important. Um, from the healthcare system perspective, veterans like the It's not necessarily free, but heavily subsidized. Many of them are poor and not able to afford that change. You know, it's like every Thursday, I go to my clinic and me and my buddies get together and have a couple of games of poker outside you know, while they're waiting for the doctors on the you know, They'll share those kinds of stories. So I think part of it is that. So are very committed to preserving the VA. Mm-hmm. That's a whole evening's discussion about whether that's wise or not wise. But the principles of the VA is strong and still there are the correct whether the system survives or it's subsumed by something else, as long as there's principles are there. But veterans are very loyal to the VA. One not other yet. point that mm-hmm. I must mention is that actually the VA only takes care of maybe 25%, 30% of the nation's veterans. You mm-hmm. folks are taking care yeah. of your two-thirds.
1: Right. You may not know that That's because right. you may not
0: have gone through a military cultural competence yeah. curriculum to mm-hmm. ask a simple question, are you a veteran? Most people don't ask that question. Right. That was the problem yeah. We have time for one or two more comments on this side. Yeah. The question is, the team-based care and sharing of responsibilities is so important, as I'm trying to uh, ask you. Uh, how does that, does that not conflict with this continuity of relationship where most patients are looking for a head doctor mm-hmm. to describe? I don't mean the client, a head doctor, You know, a chief, a captain of the ship countries. Was, was that the essence of work? So I, I think potentially they are in conflict. And that's one of the things we have to sort out. So it's not so much that the team needs to share all the making. The patient needs to come down and say that the team is for him or her. Mm-hmm. Now, each veteran has an identified single primary care provider. That will be either a physician, usually a general medicine or a primary chemist practitioner, No difference between the two. They all have, right John, they all have an identifier. No matter what experiments we do, we have to integrate it into the patent more. So there actually is a head doctor. And the trick is having the head doctor there sufficiently so that the patient recognizes yeah. that the head doctor really is the head doctor. But that these other people are bringing, not just other opinions, but different perspectives yeah. in the team. So I think they're not incompatible, but they're tricky. And they're tricky at each and every interaction. Some patients get it like that. Other
1: patients say, hey, no,
0: what is this? Now, because of that, one of the critical measures in the PAC model, as you want to a comment here, is the continuity issue. That is, how many of your visits were you seen by Dr. A? I mean, every patient has occasion, Dr. Y, or most practitioners eat, but they begin to appreciate the dietitian A, yeah. that physical therapist B, that pharmacist C is going home, or not even around, et cetera. So, you know, we've got to build this carefully, but I don't think it's appropriate to to um, present the patient in a conundrum, of we're all here for you, other. That wouldn't really work. hope it's going to happen, okay? And I think it's a likely outcome, but we don't know that for sure. So I'm not sure your question is really answered yeah. and it's one of many questions, uh, but I mean, just as a practical example, when, in our centers of excellence clinics, when a new patient comes in, or well, an old patient is now coming into this practice, there's a sit-down discussion. Yeah. I'm your head doctor, but you're also going to see at times a dietitian, and why are you going to see this because they, the pharmacists, let's be honest, know more about medication reconciliation and probably more about <laughs> therapeutics in the long run. That may be a very good, you know, physician and practitioners too. But you have know, to explain that. That's the shared, that's, that's, that's building a relationship with the patient. So if you introduce them to the team, and you identify them, and you give them a chart for a of what the team members yeah. and what they do, you have a variety of ways of doing this. So I mean, I think there are ways we're sort of trying to tackle that, but I don't know what we're counting the Yeah. I'm afraid we have to come to conclusion. We're gonna, do we still have snacks yeah. outside? Yeah. Stay, there's more food and drink. You can stay for a little bit, but we have to get you to a train, which is why I'm stopping now. Um, my wife, my wife thanks me. You. Your wife thanks thank me. You. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. of sure.